This is the Apex United Methodist Church podcast. You should have the opportunity to preach one Sunday because you get to see some things up here that you don't see down there. Those of you who are ready to go to children's church, grade two and and under, please follow Miss Ellen. So one of them is the flossing that happens while people are gathering. I'm still trying to learn that dance. And my grandchildren are getting a little frustrated with me. But I'll get there. The other thing that I just love to see when the children um, seeing is all the parents who are putting on their big smiles to remind their child to smile and reading and lip-syncing the words because you practice it so much at home. Very good. The art of subtraction. The first time I heard that was in divinity school. Very first year, very first um, course because Dean Cogdill taught us that we needed to learn very quickly the art of subtraction. He encouraged us to practice that art in giving up some of our busyness in life, committees and activities and commitments, because we were going to need to spend that time getting to know God more fully in order to prepare ourselves for ministry. And you know that in the past few weeks in this congregation, we've been studying the art of uh, subtraction from some 14th century Christians who were mystics and who had found it necessary to subtract in their own lives in order to deepen their relationship with God. St. Teresa of Avila had to say no to a relentless schedule in order to honor the Sabbath. Anthony the Great had to say no to an overly active brain in order to meditate. Today, we'll meet St. Catherine of Siena, who had to learn to say no to some, some relationships with family and friends in order to enter a Dominican convent and increase her relationship with God. And next week, we'll end this series hearing about St. Francis of Assisi, who will encourage us to say no to the clutter in our lives. What does the art of subtraction then have to do with relationships? You know, we only have a limited capacity for relationships in our lives, and many of them are what I would call surface relationships. You have them, right? Parents of children in your children's classes, people who attend the same social gatherings once or twice a year, Then there are those social media relationships. I don't do social media. To be honest, I don't find much joy in learning what's going on in someone's life through a post. I would much rather talk to them face-to-face or at least voice-to-voice. It's fine if you like Facebook. There's no problem with it. But I would just rather have that one-on-one relationship. In this busy life, and especially with the season that we're about to enter, with family gatherings and all we need to do, I wonder who it is that you need to love more deeply below the surface and what needs to be subtracted 
from your life in order to love more deeply. Paul's letter to the Corinthians gives us a key to how to develop those more loving relationships. The love that Paul describes fills us with joy and hope, and yet it challenges us at the same time. So I invite you to listen as Paul describes the love God offers us and challenges us to share a very familiar passage from the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And we'll be concentrating on verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Did you hear that? If I have every spiritual gift there is, if I'm able to speak eloquently, foresee the hand of God in my life and know all the answers to life's deepest questions, if I have the biggest heart when it comes to giving, but do not have love for all God's creatures, I have nothing. I gain nothing. This word love can mean many different things. Of course, in this day and time, we kind of dilute that word a little bit. You know, like, I love HGTV. I love crab cakes. I love your new house. But the kind of love that is spoken of in the Bible is a different kind of love. It's relationship love. And even so, there are several different kinds. There's that love for the person, the one person who makes your heart sing. You know what I'm talking about? The one who looks handsome or beautiful in your eyes long after the world's eyes have looked away. That's Eros love. Named for the Greek god, oh boy, I just love it when people kind of giggle with that, with their, with their person next door. <laughs> That's Eros love, named for the Greek god of love, like the Roman Cupid. And then there's philia, a deep caring for one another in relationships with friends and neighbors and the people in your church or some other group. Philia. Next, there's Storge. Familial love, a deeper relationship between parents and children or brother and sister. And God uses all of these gifts of love, but none of them are the kind of love God was speaking about, uh, Paul was speaking about in this chapter. You see, Paul at that time was speaking to a divided church in Corinth amidst a culture of sin. He acknowledged that they had different spiritual gifts, but he called them to follow a more excellent way when it came to being in relationship with each other, and that was agape love, 
God's love. For Paul, this kind of love was the heart of the gospel. It was a love that was patient and kind, not arrogant or rude, nor irritable, nor resentful, rejoicing in truth rather than wrongdoing. Think about that for a moment. Who do you need to know on a deeper level who right now tests your patience, makes you rude or resentful? Maybe when Alta leads our morning prayer this morning, we could name those personally in our hearts. That might be a good start toward agape love. Well, St. Catherine of Siena, who we're going to learn about today, experienced this agape love. She was born in the mid-1300s. She was the 23rd of 25 children and a twin to boot. Now, how much love do you think was poured on her as she grew up? At the same time that she was born, Europe, where she was born, was reeling under two major catastrophes. The Black Plague, which, by the way, took her twin sister, spread throughout Europe and the surrounding areas, bringing a speedy and horrible death. Almost half the population of Europe died as a result of the, of the Black Plague, and many blamed this on the wrath of an angry god and therefore, they began to hate the church as a representative of God. At the same time, Europe was suffering many religious and political instabilities from the Crusades, holy wars that were waged to establish political control and expand the, the territory of different popes. At that time, clergy in the Catholic Church often misused their power to grab most of the country's assets, and many people died fighting these holy wars. Well, beginning at age six, Catherine received several visions that led her to a deep relationship with Christ. During one, Catherine received marks on her head and hands and feet corresponding to those left on Jesus when he hung on the cross. This is called stigmata, and it was actually experienced by more people than just St. Catherine. Stigmata is the title of the painting that you see on the screen. As a result of ascetic fasting, she became anorexic and unable to eat normally, and she spent the rest of her life eating only bread and water and raw vegetables, and even those she had difficulty keeping down. Catherine left family and friends' relationships in order to enter a Dominican convent where she maintained silence for three years. And there she taught herself to read and write and gained wisdom of theology in communing with God. Armed with a deep relationship to Christ and a thorough knowledge of theology, Catherine then committed her life to tending the poor and the sick and the imprisoned. She gained fame among the leadership in the Catholic Church and all the kings around, and she traveled about mediating at every level of leadership in the church, working for reform and political stability. For this, she received sainthood 
after her death. At the core of St. Catherine's teachings were these, intimacy with Jesus Christ, fulfilling his command to love, a desire to lead others based not on intentionality and, and spirituality as much as totally on love, totally on love, complete humility, and the ability, my friends, to live in peace without judging others. To Catherine, the cross revealed the fullness of God's love. The blood flowing from the side of Jesus on that cross in her mind made the infinite love of God visible. Love alone, she believed, is what held Jesus to the cross. No human power, she thought, nailed him there, for earthly forces could not bind him to the wood. It was the love that he had for us that held him there. This reckless personal love Jesus, she, Jesus had for her shaped her life. So now when we look at the cross and participate in communion, I wonder if we too might begin to feel and experience that personal reckless love Jesus has for us. In her book, Dialogue, God tells Catherine, on the cross, Christ bows his head to greet you, stretches out his arms to embrace you, lets his feet be nailed so that he may stand with you. Catherine believed that showing this kind of love was what kept Jesus nailed to the cross and is not an option for Christians. Not an option. It is our calling. By the time Catherine died at age 33, she had spent her life teaching and living out her call to love God and others. For St. Catherine, love was the driving force of the world and she sought to connect everyone with that love because in so doing, she believed she was connecting people to the very heart of God. And her desire to love changed the trajectory of her life. It impacted what she did and the choices she made. She befriended prisoners and professionals and popes and kings. She believed that none of these were placed in her path by accident. For her, there was no such thing as a chance encounter. She saw with great clarity that everyone she met was God's gift to her. And her calling was to show them the love of God in a relationship that gave her a sense of peace and gratitude and gave the other person a real deep sense of looking into God's face. Writing in a poem, she talked about that place in her life as a place of abundance, and here's what she said. I cannot lose anything in this place of abundance, I found. If something my heart cherishes gets taken away, I just say, Lord, what happened? And a hundred more appear. I, too, do not believe in chance encounters. I believe that we have many opportunities that Jesus places in our path 
as a result of Jesus and God's working. And it happened to me yesterday. I'd come over to the church for a few minutes to kind of halfway prepare some things for this morning, and I ran into a member of the church, and without even talking about what the sermon was about, she started telling me about um, an encounter that she had on Facebook. There I go, social media. (laughs) See, I I don't mind if people tell me about it. I just don't do it myself. But um, she talked about a person that she knew who has in the past year or two sacrificed deeply to give of herself for her um, father and mother who have come to need her in a very profound way. This girl has very few financial resources, many, many responsibilities, and yet she has given sacrificially of her life to help take care of her parents. And you know what the post said on Facebook? In the midst of all of this loss and suffering, it said, if you know somebody who doesn't have anywhere to go on Thanksgiving, or if that might be you, come to my house. I'm going to have turkey and mashed potatoes. You bring whatever you want and let's celebrate Thanksgiving together. What a place of abundance. So how do we change the trajectory of our lives in order to find that place of abundance? Well, first I think we need to remember that this is a journey. It is not a, and it is a process. We don't get from where we are spiritually today to complete dependence on God's love in an instant. It's that process of sanctification that John Wesley talks about. It takes practice and time. Secondly, Paul gives us clues in his many letters in the Bible. He urges for an example, he urges the church in Ephesus to be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing one another in love. And to the church in Corinth, he writes, seek the advantage of the other, Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. And to the church in Philippi, he writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Now, I've spent a lot of time trying to consider others equal to me, That's one of the things that I work on daily. But that's not what Paul says. Consider others in all humility better than yourself. He mandated them to have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had on the cross when Jesus humbled himself, taking on the very nature of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even to the cross. In our first reading today, we heard John plead with his friends, let us love one another. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, one way to help us be more intentional about learning how to love is a spiritual practice called Lectio Divina, 
divine reading. We've practiced this before, and you've been introduced to that before in some other sermons, but this week I hope you'll take time to read quietly alone, listening for God's word to you, the scripture cards that were given out this morning. Each day as you read the selection for the day, take time to read it through at least three times, maybe more. Clear your mind of all the thoughts and the responsibilities for the day and listen for what God is saying to you on that particular day with that particular scripture. With the first reading, ask, what is the scripture passage saying to me today? There's something I want you to remember when you do this. There is no right or wrong answer. What God might reveal to you today with a scripture passage might be different from what he would reveal to you on another day and often very different from what the person sitting to the right or left of you would hear. Some of us have been doing recently a study called Praying, Listen, Praying in a Noisy World by Reuben Job. And it's fascinating for us to hear something from another person's perspective that they heard in that, journey, in that scripture. So I encourage you this week to give that a try. With the second reading, ask, what direction guidance or wisdom am I hearing and sensing? And the third time you read, ask, what actions are being suggested as my response? Is there someone God is calling you to share agape love with in a deeper relationship? I urge you, don't put it off. You know who it is. Maybe someone you've been avoiding. Maybe someone who shares different ideas about religion or life or politics. Maybe someone you have yet to meet because God can use you with that person. My friends, agape love must be the foundation of all those deeper relationships God is calling us to. We don't know who God is until we look at Jesus. The world doesn't know who God is until they see God revealed in us. What do people see when they watch you, when they watch me? What relationships do you need to subtract in order to grow the ones God calls you to grow. Remember, it's a process, not an instantaneous transformation. As Jesus was revealed by God to a fragmented and hurting world, so must we. Love is that important. Amen.